Jesus is unsettling sometimes, is he not? He likes to come into our tidy little neat lives that we've made for ourselves, our tidy little neat theological categories that we have all structured out, and he likes to just mess around with them. He likes to say things that throw people off. He likes to bring out truths by touching things that are sacred in our culture, in the culture that he dealt with. He likes to say things that are sometimes deliberately provocative, to elicit a response, to draw us in to think about what he's saying. No, none more so than this last point of his Bread of Life sermon in John chapter 6. Jesus says some, some wild things. And because of the things that he said, the early church was often accused of being cannibalistic and incestuous. Because they had love feasts with their brothers and sisters and they ate the body and blood of the Lord Jesus. And these events were shrouded in mystery because unbelievers, those who have not been baptized, were excluded from even seeing what happened. They might sit and hear the preaching of the word, but then they would be shut out of the community when they participated in the agape feast and the Lord's Supper. And because of that mystery, speculation began to, and uh, gossip spread. And the Romans, the Greco-Romans, despised the Christians because of this. And they, they called them cannibals. Were Christians cannibals? And the obvious answer is no. But to a hostile world shut out from the actual proceedings and hearing only their descriptions. And of course, with, coupled with this statements of Jesus, like verse 53 that says, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. How are we to understand what Jesus is speaking about? The early church derived their Eucharistic practices, their practices surrounding the Lord's Supper from the Gospel accounts. And specifically, Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us how Jesus instituted His Last Supper. But John does not have an account, or he does not retell that event in the same way. Instead, we have this Bread of Life sermon, in which Jesus makes some very bold statements that on the surface seem to promote the idea that Jesus endorsed cannibalism. So to understand what Jesus means when he says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, we need to take in the whole context of this sermon. Jesus is the bread of life. That's what he's been driving at throughout this whole sermon. The crowd has come to him to get their bellies filled with bread because of the miracle of providing bread out of five loaves of barley and two fishes. And yet, Jesus wants to give them something so much better than physical bread, so much better than even the manna that he gave their fathers in the wilderness. He wants to give them himself. And as he drives his final point home to the skeptical crowd, he turns from plain speech to deal in metaphor. 
metaphor is a way for us to understand something difficult by likening it to something that we understand. Eating. All of you eat, correct? So you understand eating. You understand feeding. He turns using the idea of the bread of life that he is in himself to describe how we participate in that life with the metaphor of eating. So as you're able, please stand with me as we read from the gospel according to John chapter 6. We're going to be beginning in verse 49. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the bread of life. Your Son, Jesus, who is life in Himself and who, whose sacrificial death has granted to us eternal life and the promise that He will raise us up on the last day. That all those who come and believe, all those who feed upon Him, have that life. Father, as we come to this difficult text Open our eyes to see your glory shining in the face of Jesus Christ. For we pray this in his strong name. And amen. Amen. You may be seated. As he transitions, Jesus, from their demands for proof by asking for a sign, and then his second point, which is a deep theologizing by peeling back the curtains to show how is it that some respond to God, to to the Son in belief, and some respond in unbelief? How is it that the crowd rejects the one who is the bread who came from heaven, all while seeking and longing for bread? Jesus moves then from plain speech in the rest of his sermon to a metaphorical description of how one is to appropriate how one is to take the benefits that Jesus offered, life. How do, we, how do we receive those things? He moves then to draw out the implication of the rest of his sermon. 
That he is the bread of life that came down from heaven by comparing what is unclear to what is abundantly clear. And this is, of course, how metaphors work. We don't want to stretch the metaphor too far. God is a rock, but he's not literally a rock. He's metaphorically has all the good qualities of a rock. He is immovable, enduring, strong, unfailing. And those capture some of the characteristics of who God is. But what is the metaphor of feeding meant to allude to? And why use a metaphor so provocative as to be off-putting to his audience? As with everything in Jesus' Bread of Life sermon, each of the elements can be traced from their types and shadows laid down in the Old Covenant to their final fulfillment in Christ. So to understand Jesus' use of feeding, we need to open up what is perhaps the very center of this third point in verse 53. And Jesus begins there by saying, truly, truly, drawing our attention to the importance of what he is about to say. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Only then can we flesh out the meaning of his use of the metaphor feeding in this context. Finally, we will conclude with some reflections on whether these statements of Jesus are referring to the Lord's Supper which our mind naturally goes to as Christians. So first, we have noticed already in our journey through John's gospel that Jesus' favorite title of himself is as the Son of Man. Notice there in verse 53, he says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man. And identifying himself that way, that phrase which is very pregnant with meaning revolving around two major ideas, covenant representation and incarnation. The Son of Man makes us think, of course, of Adam, who represented all of humanity as a covenant head. He represents us. Here we must have the night vision of Daniel in mind from Daniel chapter 7. There, one like the Son of Man ascends to the Father on a cloud, and he is presented to God. And in Daniel chapter 7, verse 14, it says, And to him, that is to the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The Son of Man is a king, and he's given a people, We talked about that two weeks ago. The Father gave the Son a gift of people. And those people that come to Him are drawn by the Father. He will never cast out. And there, that is pictured for us as receiving a people and nation languages that will serve Him. And His kingdom will expand and cover the whole earth. And it will never be destroyed. Jesus is our representative King. But the Son of Man is also incarnational. The Son of God was eternal. He was eternally begotten of the Father, but the Son of Man was begotten in time. When the Son of God came and He took on flesh and He dwelt among us, He took to Himself a reasonable body. The Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, was begotten of Mary in time and became the Son of Man. 
And in his body, so that he might heal all of humanity, he reconciles God and man perfectly. He is both God and man in one body. Two distinct natures, one person. Okay, that makes sense. But where does the eating come from? Where does Jesus get this idea of eating the flesh and drinking the blood in order to take the life that the Son of Man offers? Where is that from? Is he just making this up out of nowhere? And here we must take John's earlier idea that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and we must marry that with a close look at two important sacrificial services that involve eating. The peace offering, which we read from Leviticus 7, and the Passover. To understand a little bit, we need to trace out what these types and shadows are pointing to and what Jesus is fulfilling when he says, My flesh is true life, and my blood is true drink, and those who eat it will have my life. The time, of course, does not permit me to give a detailed exposition of the sacrificial system. It's, it, it would take a, an exposition of the entirety of Leviticus to understand the details for each sacrifice. But, but for our importance, let me just read a few verses from Leviticus 9. This outlines the three main sacrificial services that were important for Israel's worship. In verses 3 of chapter 9 of Leviticus, Moses says, And say to the people of Israel, Take a male goat for a sin offering, and a calf and a lamb, both a year old without blemish, for a burnt offering, and an ox and a ram for peace offering, to sacrifice before the Lord, and a grain offering mixed with oil. For today the Lord will appear to you. So here we have outlined for us the three main types of sacrifices called the sin offering, the burnt offering or the ascension offering, and the peace offering. When they are done, they are always done in that order. And by the way, our own service of worship follows that order. We are first called into God's presence and we confess our sin. That is, corresponds with the sin offering. And then we are consecrated through the preaching of the word. And that is the ascension offering where the animal is cut up into pieces and arranged upon the altar and ascends wholly burnt in the smoke of the offering to the Lord as a, as a pleasing aroma and signifying that the, the animal is completely consumed in the offering. And then... Those two offerings of confession and consecration are followed with the peace offering. And the peace offering is different than the other ones. The peace offering is a portion of the animal is set aside. It is roasted in a certain way, waved before the Lord, and the priest and the worshiper and his family eat it. They eat it together. They participate in a meal of peace. Meals symbolize peace and reconciliation. When an enemy offers you bread and says, come and sit with me, he is offering you terms of peace. You can do one of two things. You can accept his offer of peace and eat with him, or you can reject it and remain at odds with him. The peace offering is there to signify that we are reconciled to God, that we are now at peace with him, that we can sit down no longer as enemies, 
but at peace, reconciled. Our sins have been forgiven. We've been consecrated and made holy, and now we are at peace with God. And so we eat a meal together. And of course, we can't help but think about the Lord's Supper, which is, of course, an anticipation of of that great marriage supper of the Lamb when we will finally sit down to the great banquet with our King and eat in peace, no longer separated by our sins. But we will be at peace with them. And this, this last sacrifice of the peace offering is what Jesus is alluding to here. Because the, the worshiper is allowed to eat of that sacrifice in a way that signifies, that symbolizes his his being at peace with God. But the image takes an even greater significance when we couple that with the Passover sacrifice and lay it over the image of Christ as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There in the Passover sacrifice is meant to commemorate the last and final plague where God strikes down the firstborn of all Egypt, but He passes over those houses who are marked with the blood of the Lamb. And in that killing of the lamb, as the families kill the lamb and place the blood on the doorpost, they roast the lamb and they eat it together. And they eat it in haste because they're going out. They're going out in an exodus. And they're to do that every year to remind themselves, to remember the exodus and the Passover, that God passed over their sin because of the blood of a substitutionary sacrifice. And so those two images, both the peace offering and the lamb for the Passover, are eaten. They're eaten. And in that is symbolized our our being at peace and, and receiving life from the sacrifice, right? But what about blood? Perhaps if we had had if he had not brought blood into the picture, then Israel would have understood and maybe not have been so offended, so confused, and so repulsed. The Jews were commanded not to eat anything with the blood in it, for the life was in the blood, and the life belonged to God. The worshiper, was, when presenting the sacrifice for a peace offering, it never drank the blood of the animal. That, that would be pagan madness. But Jesus has good reason to expand the peace offering to include blood because his sacrifice as the antitype has two extra elements that all the other sacrifices did not have. One is a finality. He offers himself once for all. It does not need to be repeated. And second, his death involves scandal. The blood in this sacrifice, and as Jesus speaks about, has less to do with life and more to do with the destructive nature of sacrificial death. Seeing through this lens, it throws the cross, of course, into sharp relief. The author of Hebrews points this out in chapter 10. I want to read a few verses just to understand the context for uh, this connection between the peace offering and the offering of Christ. The author of Hebrews says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? 
since the worshiper, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And when he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifice and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Amen. Amen. He has fulfilled what the sacrificial system only pointed to. For it was a reminder that sins were costly. They cost the death of a substitute. And they're reminded as they do it year after year that they are awaiting that one Messiah who would come and take away their sins forever. Never to be remembered again. And by His single offering, He makes us at peace with God. If the act of eating the peace offering made you at peace with God, then why did it have to be repeated every year? And that's because it was only a type. But Christ came to offer Himself once for all to cleanse from sin, consecrating you and I to be at peace with God. Through, of course, the blood of His cross. And it's not a repeatable because it's perfect. The antitype to which the whole law was merely a type. So by adding blood, Jesus is alluding to the life that is ours through His death. Not an approximation of life like manna, or like bread. Jesus is life in an exhaustive and eternal way. In His sacrificial death, the blood of Christ cleanses you from sin finally and forever. But what about scandal? I think that Jesus uses intentionally this phrase, drink His blood. Drinks my blood, He says. I think He is alluding to the scandal of the cross. Here, the scandal of drinking the blood of Christ is a clear violation of the law. It points to the scandalous nature of Christ's atonement. He who knew no sin became sin for us by suffering the shame and humiliation of dying on a tree. For a hanged man is cursed by God. Deuteronomy 21.33 One author wrote, When the cross becomes a symbol of power or beauty suppressing the historical reminder of a particularly brutal instrument of humiliation and death, then its own moral authority under the Christian rubric of cross-bearing is threatened. 
You see, we carry around on our necks a cross. And it's become a symbol of beauty and power. But for Jesus, it was a, it was a source of great humiliation and torture and pain. And when we remove that aspect from the cross, then the idea that cross-bearing is suffering ceases to be a part of our imagery of the cross. The life Jesus offers will remain just out of reach if we are scandalized by the cross. And many are. The foundation of the gospel is the cross of Jesus Christ. His death in a very public and humiliating way. And given these metaphorical allusions, Jesus weaves the end of his bread of life sermon into a, a kind of double-edged sword. It is an indictment against unbelief. But it's also a th- the thrilling hope of eternal life. Paul has this in mind when he said, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. You see, the stone is either something you by faith build upon as a cornerstone, or it is something that crushes you. And this is on full display when even some of Jesus' disciples take offense at what he says. That's what we're going to look at next week. The response is hard. His disciples are not sure if they want to keep following a guy who is calling them to eat his flesh and drink his blood. They are scandalized by the cross and already they begin to reject him. What then is the right response? Jesus has moved from plain speech to metaphor and the progression went like this. Coming to Jesus equals believing in Jesus. Jesus said to them in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Then in turning to metaphor, coming and believing in Christ equals feeding upon him. So while it sounds scandalous, the scandal is not that we must literally eat his flesh and drink his blood, but that we must appropriate Jesus by faith. Augustine said, believe and you have eaten. Believe and you have eaten. What does it mean to appropriate Christ? That is an expression used to point to our union with him. Just as food, when you eat it, becomes a part of your body. So when you come to Jesus by faith, his life becomes yours and yours becomes his. You become what you eat, do you not? Just like that, when you come to Jesus and you feed upon Him, that is, you take a hold of all of His benefits by faith, and you're united to Him by that faith, then everything that is His becomes yours. And everything that is yours becomes His, namely your sin. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20. Paul uses some variation of that phrase, in Christ or in him, 216 times. And John uses it at least 26 times, often using the term abide. Notice in verse 56, he says, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. There is a reciprocal abiding by feeding on Christ that is taking hold of Christ by faith. We abide in him and he abides in us. Our union with Christ is a central tenet of the New Testament teaching on salvation. You cannot receive any benefit from Christ if you remain outside of him. The Dutch theologian Herman Baving wrote, The whole church, comprehended in him as its head, has objectively been crucified, has died, been resurrected, and glorified with him. All the benefits of grace, therefore, lie prepared and ready for the church in the person of Jesus Christ. So in your union with Christ, you have died and have been raised to new life in him. What this expresses is an ongoing participation summed up nicely here by Jesus in the statement, feeding. Feeding on Christ is a a participation in His death and resurrection by faith. It is to appropriate all that is Christ as your own. And this becomes the basis not only for your justification, but for your ongoing sanctification. The term for abide in Greek is remain, which has a durative quality, meaning to stay, to continue with, to endure with, to dwell with, to live with, to abide in. We can express this by saying that Christian discipleship entails coming to Christ continually. Christian discipleship entails believing in Christ continually. It means feeding upon Christ continually. We must remain with Him, continuing to abide until He comes again. For only in Him is true life. But maybe you say, I have come to Christ, and I have believed in Him, which you call feeding on Him, but I still... I still feel whatever you're feeling. Pain, suffering, death. I don't feel life. You say that I come to Jesus and I believe in Him and I feed upon Him and then I receive that life. But I feel dead. And my physical body is dying. And I'm suffering from pain. Where is the life on display in this world that is so filled with death and suffering. Jesus begins this third point to his sermon with a juxtaposition between the manna, which could not prevent death. The people ate the manna and they died. That's the point Jesus is making. That manna did not provide sustained life that would endure. It did keep them alive for a time, Just as bread does for us now. But it did not prevent their death. 
And this summarizes the desire of the crowd to be fed now. We want relief from pain and suffering. We want that new creation life that God promised through His Son, Jesus. We want it now. We don't want to suffer. We want our bellies to be filled now. But if Jesus gives this kind of bread, then why do we still suffer and die? The biggest problem that we face is, is of course, changing our frame of reference. For it is hard to see anything beyond what we experience every day. But the life Jesus offers that will be forever does not erase the reality created by a world broken in sin. It does not even erase our physical deaths. But however permanent and enduring our present situations seem, they are just temporary. Paul, who suffered more than most, said this light, momentary affliction is preparing for me an eternal weight of glory. Paul, who died, who was drowned, who was beaten, stoned, mocked, derided, and eventually killed, said this light, momentary affliction. You see, we have to expand our frame of reference so that we begin to see our sufferings and even our death in light of eternity. The life Jesus offered is life beyond death. For he says, I will raise up that life on the last day. Unmentioned in this context, we learn that as a pledge or a down payment of that resurrection life, Jesus will send us His Spirit. So that amid this temporal life, we might get a foretaste of that life is to come. And we do get it. Do we not, even in the midst of our pain and suffering, experience joys? Sometimes joys that we cannot even explain, and they make no sense out of the context in which they come. And that, coupled with the witness, the internal witness of the Spirit is assuring us of that life that is to come. Ignatius, the early church father, in his epistle to the Romans expressed it this way, I take no delight in corruptible food or in the dainties of this life. What I want is God's bread, which is the flesh of Christ, who came from David's line. And for drink I want His blood, an immortal love feast indeed. And the language of feeding naturally leads to reflections on the Eucharist. And as we prepare, even this morning, to come to the Lord's Supper, it helps us to reflect. It's easy enough for us to read this text and naturally to think about the Lord's Supper. And Christians have read this text in that way since the early church. But the question remains, is this primarily about the Lord's Supper? Is that what Jesus is speaking about? Is it all sacramental? And the answer is no, it's not. John 6 is not, one, one commentator summarizes this so well. He says, John 6 is not about the Lord's Supper. Rather, the Lord's Supper is about what is described in John 6. It concerns that eating and drinking which is belief in Christ, which is eternal life and which on, on other words is described as abiding in Him. And the discourse in John 6 represents these activities as central to the faith and to the men's relationship with Jesus. 
They are not confined to a sacramental meal. They belong to the very essence of a day-to-day relationship. In presenting this discourse and omitting an account of the institution of the Lord's Supper, John is, in effect, saying that the whole of the Christian life should be characterized by this kind of feeding on Christ. And this is what the sacramental meal of the church is really about. End quote. It's better to see Jesus' sermon not as about the Lord's Supper, but as the Lord's Supper is about Jesus' sermon. And that's what they so missed. They want manna from heaven, and they have manna right in front of them. They thought the sign of manna was the substance. And Jesus says, no, I'm the substance. I'm the bread of life. I am the bread of life. And I came down from heaven from the Father who has life to give you life. And all you have to do is come to me and believe in me and feed upon me. And I will give you that life. The supper is visible words reminding us in suitable emblems that speak of the gospel they tell us this, this sermon. They preach this sermon in signs and seals of your peace with God. Your reconciliation to the Father through the sacrifice of the Son. They give you an approximation of that marriage supper of the Lamb where you'll sit down in peace with Jesus at the head. Only in Christ is true life found, not in manna that God gave to the fathers, not in the miraculous feeding of the 5,000 with five barley loaves, and of course, not even in our daily bread. Life is in Christ, and those who want that life must come by faith and feed upon Him. Feeding on Christ entails taking all of Him and giving Him all of you. The instrument for that great exchange is just faith. Faith is not a leap in the dark. It's not wishful thinking, but a reasoned, thoughtful response to the offer of life that Jesus gives. In the signs and seals on offer in the supper, faith reaches out and grasps the life of Christ in the eating and drinking of bread and wine, which the Spirit is pleased to make Christ really present to the nourishment of your soul. Life on offer is the life of Christ in His sacrificial death, which is yours through faith. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. As the elders come forward, on the night in which the Lord Jesus was betrayed, He took bread.